If you would, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. As we continue in the book of Genesis, we're in Genesis 24, a relatively well-known account of Abraham sending his servant out to seek a wife for Rebekah. Um, back in the 16th century, the Swiss preacher Hans Zart was said to have preached 450 sermons on this chapter. And the people complained and were tired of his repetitiveness. And the synod, uh, the Reformed Synod of Zurich, admonished him that he was to study the scriptures and learn the proper forms of exegesis and was to explain biblical passages to the people and make them relevant to their lives. And so just for the record, this is my first time preaching on Genesis 24. Lord willing, we'll be continuing next week to Genesis 25. But this morning, Genesis 24, let's begin reading in verse 1. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, And the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and spoke from the, and who spoke to me, excuse me, and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when the women go out to draw water. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring, and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it please, uh, now may it be that the girl to whom I say, Please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, Drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness. To my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, 
Please let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will also draw for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all the camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels in gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. When he saw the ring and bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of Rebekah his sister, saying, This is what the man said to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside, since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man entered the house. Then Laban unloaded the camels, and he gave straw and feed to the camels, and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. But when the food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And he said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age and he has given him all that he has. My master made me swear saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Suppose the woman does not follow me. He said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you to make your journey successful, and you will take a wife for my son from my relatives and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my relatives, and if they do not give her to you, you will be free from my oath." So I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you will make the journey on which I go successful, behold, I am standing by the spring. May it be that the maiden who comes out to draw and to whom I say, please let me drink a little from your jar. And she will say to me, you drink and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder and went down to the spring and drew. I said to her, Please let me drink. 
And she quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will water your camels also. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. Then I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. And I put the ring on her nose and bracelets on her wrist. And I bowed low and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So now, if you are going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel replied, The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you, bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. The servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the girl stay with us a few days, say ten. Afterwards she may go. He said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And he said, she said, I will go. Thus they sent her away. Uh, they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. Then Rebekah arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac had come from going to Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, as we uh, consider this uh, rather lengthy chapter uh, this morning, we will do so under, under three main headings. First of all, the need for a bride. The need for a bride. Secondly, the providence of God. Providence of God. And then thirdly, shadows of a coming wedding. Shadows of a coming wedding. So we have the need for a bride, the providence of God, and the shadows of a coming wedding. And so, uh, first of all, the need for a bride. The narrative of the chapter is generally straightforward enough. We can understand things pretty well, I think. But nevertheless, it's helpful, I think, for us to slow down and consider some of the elements here. This chapter, along with chapter 23 before it and chapter 25 following it, shows the, the passing of the baton, as it were, from one generation to the next. 
after God had fulfilled the promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son, the continued fulfillment of those promises hinged on Isaac having a wife and having a child himself. If indeed, as the Lord had said, through Isaac your descendants shall be named, as the Lord said in Genesis 21:12, then that means that Isaac needs a wife. Now, we saw the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah, last week, chapter 23. And Abraham himself is now old. He is now about 140 years old. The time for passing the baton to the next generation had come. And so Abraham calls in his servant in regard to procuring a wife for Isaac. And there are a few things that we ought to notice about this interaction between Abraham and his servant. For one, the servant is given directions as to where and among whom he is to seek a wife for Isaac. He's not to seek a wife for Isaac from among the Canaanites. And of course, this would become a matter of divine law later on. Marrying a Canaanite would be out of bounds for the Israelites when they came into the land. And so we read in Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. And so the Canaanites were a very wicked and ungodly people. Abraham is very clear that he doesn't want a wife for Isaac to be taken from among them. Not only are they very wicked and ungodly, but they are also under a particular curse, the curse of Noah, uttered in Genesis 9.25. So these are people who are wicked, who would eventually be wiped out by the Israelites, and therefore, as Matthew Poole expressed it, to marry his son to such persons had been a high degree of self-murder, whereby the holy and blessed seed had been in danger of great infection from them and utter ruin with them. And so... Canaanites being out of bounds, Abraham wanted his servant to go back to his own country and to procure a wife from his relatives uh, for Isaac. For even though Abraham's relatives had idolatrous tendencies, nevertheless, they still did seem to worship or revere the true God to some degree. And you see, you see that even in the, the references which Laban makes in this chapter to the Lord. If you look at verse 31 or verse 50, you can see that they, they acknowledge the Lord. They acknowledge the true God. And so of the various alternatives available to Abraham, this one was the best. Taking a young woman from the blessed posterity of Shem who knew the true God and taking her away from the idolatrous influences and practices and bringing her into the true worshiping of God with Isaac was the best option for a bride for Isaac, as far as Abraham is concerned. And uh, just to uh, continue on this, this theme, uh, as, as we said, this admonition against the intermarriage with the Canaanites would later become uh, commanded by God in the law out of concern for the spiritual purity of his people. And this concern for the spiritual purity of the people of God is still in effect. Now, obviously, this is not a concern that is rooted in anything national or anything that is ethnic, but rather in spiritual concerns. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.39 that a wife is bound uh, as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Believers are, who are eligible to marry eligible to marry? 
whomever they want, only in the Lord. That is to say, they must marry one who is a fellow believer in Christ. Though the passage of 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, though there is certainly a broader application than simply to the marriage relationship, nevertheless, that verse is applicable to the marriage relationship as well. Now, as you read throughout the scripture, it becomes progressively more and more clear about this need to only marry a believer. But nevertheless, you see this concern here in Genesis 24. You see it in the Law of Moses. You see it in the New Testament as well. And Abraham wants his trusted servant here to, to swear to him about this. But the servant rightly understands that Abraham has intentions in this matter that are beyond his control. Obviously, he as a servant can go to the land of Abraham's origin and seek to obtain a wife for Isaac. He can do what he is able, but some things are beyond his control. Some things he can't do and some things he won't do. He's not going to bring a bride back against her will, kicking and screaming. And even if she is willing, he's not going to take her over and against the will of her family if they refused. We see some evidence of that down in verse 41. When it comes to a marriage, we're reminded that there are more wills involved than just one. I once read an account of an old man who had remained a bachelor his whole life, and he described his situation by saying that, that he was never married. He never could make the hitch. Those that wanted him, he didn't want. Those that, uh, those that he wanted didn't want him. And so he remained a bachelor. And so there are, are some things here that are beyond the servant's control. Now, he can make promises in regard to what he can do, but he cannot make promises in regard to what other people will or won't do. They might not cooperate with the plan. And so he wants to know, and rightly so, what if the woman won't come? Should he take Isaac back there to marry her? And Abraham is very clear on this point, and the answer is no. She must not go back there. Abraham himself had been called out of that land and brought to the land of promise, albeit as a stranger and a sojourner. And Isaac himself is to remain in the land and not to go back to his father's homeland. There's the possibility that had Isaac returned there, he could have been corrupted from the true and undefiled worship of God. It's perhaps even more likely that he would be corrupted there by his extended family than the likelihood that he would be corrupted by the Canaanites. The Canaanites were strangers and further degenerated in their idolatry and further removed from Isaac in, in terms of kinship. And so there's the, the likelihood that if he had gone back where there's some acknowledgement of the Lord and some idolatry mixed in, he may have more easily fallen in with that than been in danger from uh, infection from the false religion of the Canaanites. And so Abraham's very clear, Isaac must not go back there. But Abraham is also confident that the Lord is going to bless this endeavor, right? He's confident that the Lord is going to send his angel ahead of him, prepare the way, and make it all work out. But even still, he gives the exception that if the woman does not come, the servant is free from the oath. The servant can do what he can to make the arrangements, but if the match could not be made, uh, he is free of obligations. Bottom line, though, under no circumstances should Isaac go back to Mesopotamia. And so there's this need for Isaac to obtain a wife. From a human perspective, the survival of the people of God depended on this, 
the fulfillment of God's promises depended on Isaac getting a wife. Perhaps a better way of saying it would be to say that this was the God-ordained means by which the promises would be fulfilled. So Isaac needs a wife. And as we see as the chapter unfolds, God ordained not only the ends, but also the means. God ordained that Isaac would not only have a wife and that there would be a blessed seed coming from Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, but God also ordained the means toward that end, namely here in this case, giving a bride to Isaac by means of this servant and his mission there to the city of Nahor. And that brings us then to our our second point this morning, which is the, the providence of God. As we see the the details of this servant's mission laid out we see that God is not we see how the Lord was was working to bring about not only the ends but also the means the Lord was was working all through this scene here the God appointed end of Abraham becoming a great nation would come about through Isaac having a wife and then being brought together by the Lord and so the servant does his duty, right? He does what he had sworn to do. He goes to Abraham's country with these camels loaded with goods which proved the wealth and prosperity of Abraham and could potentially also be used for the dowry. And he gets to the city of Nahor in Mesopotamia as seen in verse 10. Nahor, of course, is the, the brother of Abraham. And then the servant prays. Not only does the servant do his duty practically in terms of making the journey, he also prays, as you see in verses 12 through 14. And he basically asks the Lord for a sign in regard to how things proceed. If I ask for a drink, and she not only gives me a drink, but offers to water the camels, then then let her be the one. And not only in this, though, is he asking for the Lord to give him a sign, but he is also, in a way, looking for a girl who is who would prove to be courteous and hospitable, and also industrious and hardworking. It would be no small task to draw water for 10 camels. It's not too bad to give one man a drink, but to draw water for for 10 camels who've been on a long journey there in a harsh climate, that could take some some work. One writer described this request by saying that a childish confidence in God and a worldly-wise calculation are intermixed most gracefully. The servant is trusting in the Lord, and he's also... He's also looking for for something helpful in terms of the woman. And Rebecca comes to the well and she passes the test, right? It goes off right exactly as the servant had prayed. And according to verse 15, these things unfolded even before he had finished praying. This is nothing other than the providential working of God. The Lord says in Isaiah 65, 24, that it will come to pass that before they call, I will answer And while they are still speaking, I will hear. And indeed, don't we see that going on here with this servant of Abraham? As he prays, and before he's done praying, the events already start unfolding. And indeed, even long before this servant had begun to ever pray in this, the Lord had been at work preparing a bride for Isaac. Though we didn't Look at it in great detail when we were in Genesis 22 uh, several weeks ago. uh, The closing verses of that chapter relate about the developments in this branch of Abraham's family. And so if you look back to the closing verses of chapter 22 from verse 20 down through verse 24, we see that Abraham had already received news about 
the, uh, the children that were born to his brother Nahor. Moses tells us there in verse 23 that, uh, that Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. And so God was already at work and had been at work for years in preparing a bride for Isaac. He didn't simply create Rebekah out of thin air on the spot when the servant got there to the city of Nahor. God had been preparing and fashioning the woman whom he desired to be Isaac's wife. And the Lord worked it out step by step that this servant found Rebekah. Rebekah passed the test. And when the servant asked in verse 23 about her father and the possibility of lodging there in their home, the answer comes back, verses 24 and 25, that she is Bethuel's daughter. Bethuel is the son of Nahor and Milcah. And indeed, there was room for him to lodge there in their home. And you notice the servant's response there, verses 26 and 27, that he bows low, that he worships the Lord. He recognizes that this is nothing else than, than God at work, answering his prayer, providing the way uh, exactly as Abraham had been convinced that it would unfold. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brother. This man sees exactly what's going on, that this is the Lord's outworking of his plan, and he has the right response. He understands that this is not mere chance and circumstance, but this is God's sovereign appointment and sovereign guidance. God working out the means and the ends. It's God's answer of prayer. And so he worships God. And as the chapter continues to unfold, it's clear that the Lord continued to guide and to bless the servant enters the home of Bethuel. He receives the hospitality that is showered upon him by the family. But before he eats his meal, he has to declare his business. He explained who he was, why he had come. He recounts this providential encounter with Rebekah at the well. And we see his acknowledgement in verse 48 that the Lord, the God of Abraham, had guided him in the right way to take the daughter of his master's kinsman for his son, that this was the Lord's doing. It was all so clear to him that this was God's doing. The question now is, is it equally clear to the family of the bride? And it was. In verses 15 and 51, we see Laban and Bethuel answer the question. They say, the matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you, good or bad. Here is Re Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. They saw this turn of events as the Lord's will being revealed. And this then brings Abraham's servant to bow low in worship once again, as seen in verse 52. And he brings out the gifts for the bride-to-be and gifts for the family. And just as an aside here, it is noteworthy that even though Bethuel is the father of Rebekah, it's interesting to note how much her brother Laban is much more prominent here in terms of his interactions with Abraham's servant. You notice that Laban is the one who ran to meet the servant at the spring, verse 29. Laban is the one who prepared the house and a place for the camels, in verse 31. Laban is the one who unloads the camels, gives them straw and feed, and gives water for the servants and the men to wash their feet. Laban is the one who receives gifts along with Rebekah and her mother in verse 53. It is Laban and his mother who are involved in the discussion concerning how soon Rebekah was to leave. Now we don't 
We don't know exactly why this was the case. Some have speculated that perhaps Bethuel was was somewhat incapacitated. We do see him speaking there in, uh, in verse 50 and 51. But, uh, but nevertheless, Laban seems much more prominent in these negotiations. And it's also interesting to notice some of the character traits of Laban that show up here that continue to characterize him in, in later life. Laban, obviously, is the father-in-law of Jacob, the father of Leah and Rachel, and he'll show up here again in a few chapters. But we see his interest in wealth in verse 30. His eyes take notice of the ring, the bracelets that Rebekah had received. We also see his tendency to try to keep his kinfolk in his neck of the woods and not let them go away so soon. Right? He wants to, wants to keep Re- Rebekah around for a few days. Perhaps this would have been customary and would have given time for ceremonies and rituals involved for a daughter le- leaving her native land. But later on, Laban tries to keep Jacob and his own daughters around and is not so keen uh, about having them depart. But Abraham's servant, uh, as we see here in the text, is in no mood to, to wait around when, uh, when Laban tries to detain him. He sees that the Lord has prospered his way. He wants to, wants to get going and get, get the, the deal done, so to speak. And they ask Rebecca, what, is, what does she think about it? And she's, for her part, is ready to go. And she departs with the blessing of her family. And you'll, you'll notice there that the blessing in verse 60 is remarkably similar to what the Lord had already promised Abraham back in chapter 22, verse 17, after Abraham had passed the test when he was called upon to offer up Isaac. The promise was, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And that's the blessing that they uh, the, the family of Rebekah pronounces upon her. May your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. And so she departs with Abraham's servant for the land of Canaan. It's a bride-to-be for Isaac. Now, obviously, through all of this chapter, we see the, the providence of God, how God was superintending things to work together for the fulfillment of his promises. Now, obviously, Isaac plays a unique role in the history of of redemption, given his status as the promised son of Abraham and the one through whom his descendants would be named, it was of particular and paramount importance that he would have a wife. And so it's no surprise then that the Lord provided through such remarkably providential circumstances. And there's a lesson to be learned here for us, but we need to take care that we learn the right lesson. Thomas Gattaker was an English pastor and a member of the Westminster Assembly in the 17th century, and he reportedly knew a man who had devised a a parallel test, a test that ran parallel to uh, this test that Abraham's servant had laid out. And this is how it went, that he would, quote, test any woman on whom he had cast his roving eye by asking her in sermon time where the minister's text was. And if she not only told him the text, but offered him her Bible, she was the woman who was to be his wife. Now, Thomas Gattaker rightly thought that this was irreverent and foolish. This is, this is ridiculous. So that's, that's not the lesson that we are to learn here. But what we should see, though, here is the faithfulness of God to his promises. That God makes promises, and he graciously provides the way by which they will come about. And he does this step by step, bit by bit, over time. The Lord had called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and out of Haran to make him a great nation. And 
had promised to give the land of Canaan to his descendants. And now, here, the Lord provides the next step in the fulfillment of that promise. A wife is procured for Isaac. Obviously, there's still much that needed to be accomplished in order to bring the promised seed, Christ, through whom all nations would be blessed, into the world. But this is, this is one step along the way. And there's some application here for us in regard to the way that the Lord works out his purposes and fulfills his promises in our lives. Now, as believers in Christ, we have no certain promises regarding getting married or having children or being wealthy or having an amazing career or anything of that nature. Those are not the kinds of things that we are promised. But still, we do have what Peter calls precious and magnificent promises. 2 Peter 1.4, we have promises like 1 Corinthians 1.8 that will be confirmed until the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the promise of Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Promise of 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, he also will bring it to pass. We have the promise of 1 Peter 1.5 that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And the lesson that we can glean from Genesis 24 with respect to these New Testament promises that we have as the people of God is that God will be faithful to sovereignly and providentially fulfill these promises bit by bit, installment by installment, over time, until the promise is finally and fully fulfilled. The servant's success here in finding a wife for Isaac is not the final fulfillment of the promises of God, but it was a step along the way, furthering God's purpose that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so in that respect, there is some similarity here between the Lord's work in Genesis 24 and his work in our lives, albeit sometimes in ways that are much more simple and much more mundane. And so, for instance, just consider the promise of Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, this is a promise in regard to the final perseverance and sanctification of all who belong to Christ. True believers in Christ will persevere in the faith and be sanctified because God who began that good work will carry that work on until it is finally completed. Now, as a general rule, that promise is not going to be fulfilled all in one day unless we die on the very day of our conversion to Christ. But it is going to be fulfilled day by day, installment by installment, over the course of our earthly lives. The Lord's promise to Israel of old was that of Deuteronomy 33:25, as your days, so shall your strength be. The promise of Philippians 1:6 is fulfilled bit by bit as the Lord delivers us from temptation, strengthens us to resist in the midst of temptation. This happens from week to week as the Lord sustains our faith by feeding us on the truths of his word as we hear it proclaimed, as we gather together as a church and come together to lift our hearts up to worship the Lord as he causes us to grow up into Christ, the head with other believers in the body of Christ. This happens day by day by the means of prayer as we call out to God for the things that we need and he provides for the good of our souls. This happens through edifying relationships within the body of Christ. 
And again, this is not something that, that happens overnight. It's something that happens step by step in accordance with God's sovereign design as he providentially provides for the well-being of our souls. It doesn't always look spectacular, but nevertheless, this is how, how God's promises are fulfilled. It's God providentially keeping us, perfecting his work in us until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the way the Lord provided in the Old Testament for his people with the manna. It came day by day to meet their needs. They weren't to gather up for more than one day except on the day before the Sabbath. When they did, it rotted. And this was the way that the Lord had spoken in regard to the conquest of the land. Exodus 23, 29, and 30. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you, little by little, until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. This is often the way the Lord works in our Christian lives, is, is bit by bit. And therefore Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. It's day by day that this renewal comes. And so friends, the takeaway here is to trust in the Lord and to watch him work in your own lives and the lives of others. And don't despise the day of small things, the day of small victories. Don't despise the work of the Lord as he keeps you and grows you over weeks and months and years. Just as we can look back and see the Lord's work here in moving the plan of salvation forward by these providential circumstances of Genesis 24, let's not mix the fact that in his providential uh, work in our lives, he's doing the same for us. He's bringing his promises to completion by holding us, by growing us bit by bit, day by day, over the course of our lives. And now let's, let's come to our, our third point, which is the shadows of a coming wedding. Now we witnessed a few weeks ago, back in chapter 22, the, uh, some of the ways in which Isaac foreshadows the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw how Isaac was referred to as Abraham's only son, son whom he loved, how he became a willing participant, so it seems, in the sacrifice, how he was a, a type of the resurrection from the dead, in that, as we find in Hebrews eleven nineteen, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which Abraham received Isaac back as a type. And similarly, we see shadows here in Isaac and his marriage to Rebekah, of Christ and his marriage to the church. Now, just as Abraham is said in verse 36 to have given Isaac all that he had, so Christ, our bridegroom, says in John 16, 15, all things that the Father has are mine. Abraham had put a servant up to the task of bringing this bride to his son. And even so, the Lord employs servants in the bringing of the bride, the church, to his son. And so John the Baptist saw himself as the friend of the bridegroom in John chapter 3. The friend of the bridegroom was the one who had been working out all of the details and the arrangements between the parties so that the marriage between the bride and the bridegroom might actually occur. In that culture, the friend was the one who organized the details and presided over the ceremony. And John the Baptist saw himself in this role, helping the bride and the bridegroom come together. And so he says in John 3.29, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine 
has been made full. And similarly, Paul spoke of his ministry, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, by saying, I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Cyril of Alexandria expressed it, The blessed disciples became, as it were, those who summoned the wedding banquet and who lead forth the bride, bringing near those who were yet far off, joining them to Christ, binding them together in the unity of the Spirit. And even though, as Christ's bride, we do not begin the period of our betrothal with anything by which we make it ourselves acceptable to the bridegroom, nevertheless, Christ himself cleanses us so that we become like Rebecca, as she is described in verse 16, as a beautiful virgin. And thus we are told in Ephesians 5, as our brother Stan read it for us earlier, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Christ purifies us so that we are beautiful. We're not beautiful when we first come, but when we go to the wedding, we will be beautiful. And just as Rebecca was willing to leave behind her people and go willingly to her bridegroom, even so, we are called to leave our people behind and go to our bridegroom. In accordance with those words of Psalm 45 that we sang this morning, Daughter, incline your ear. Consider well my call. Put out of mind your father's house. Forget your people all. Your beauty then the king with great delight will see because he is your Lord. Bow down before him reverently. And so when Rebecca had the choice of staying home or going to be with her bridegroom, she chose willingly to go to the bridegroom and desired to get on with the journey so as to get to him. May it be the same with us as well. And when Rebecca prepares to meet Isaac, she bailed herself there in verse 65, perhaps as a sign of subjection to him as the woman who was to be his wife, perhaps as a sign indicating that she was his betrothed. And even so, the church prepares herself for her bridegroom in accordance with those words that we read together from Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so allow the details here of the betrothal and the marriage of Rebecca and Isaac to point you forward to that great marriage the end of time when our Lord Jesus will be united forever to his bride, his people. Now you can take great comfort in this if you belong to Christ already. And if you do not belong to Christ, if you are not a part of his bride, of his church, then the scripture speaks to you a word of hope and a word of invitation in this regard. We find it in Revelation twenty-two seventeen that the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. In other words, if you are outside of Christ, if you haven't trusted him and been united to him by faith, the water of life is held out to you in the good news of the gospel. That good news is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures so that he might cleanse us and might save a people for himself with the washing of water with the word. And the church presents the gospel to you. As the gospel is preached, Christ calls out to you too to repent and believe and to join yourself to Christ and become part of his body, his bride, 
and to take the water of life without cost so that you might be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Spirit and the bride say, come. We say, come, Lord Jesus, and we also say, come to Jesus. Let the one who is thirsty take the water of life without cost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you work in the world, that all power is yours, that human hearts are in your hands and you direct them like water courses wherever you desire them to go. Lord, we praise you for uh, the beauty of the way that you work as seen in this account of Genesis 24. And Lord, we pray that you would, would strengthen us and help us, that we would trust you and lean upon you, that we would rejoice in you, that we would look forward to the great marriage supper of the Lamb, that we would, as your bride, make ourselves ready for that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.